Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We had Lyft earnings last night, um, which had guidance that was subdued, um, eclipsing the first ever profit sort of milestone. And now we have, and, and the shares are down significantly. And now we have uh, Uber coming out after the bell tonight. So let's bring in Mandeep Singh, senior tech industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence to talk about you know what we saw yesterday and what we expect tonight. I know that Lyft had its first uh, profit and it's popular maybe amongst the, the kids. For me, I'm doing like $80 in Uber rides a day here. <laughs> And I feel like they better knock it out of the park tonight. Well, so the good thing about, you know, this space is at least there are just two competitors. Uh, it's a duopoly, Uber and Lyft. You contrast that with uh, food delivery where you've got, you know, five or six vendors trying to compete uh, for, I would say, a pretty small market at this point of time. So. The print we saw with Lyft had, you know, it was a mixed bag in the sense that the bright spot was profitability, as you alluded to. But I, I think the whole pricing aspect of it is kind of worrisome because mm -hmm. at, at the end of the day, how much can you pass on to the customers? And then it starts to weigh on the volume growth. So, And especially it, Lyft customers. I mean, isn't Lyft kind of a discount Uber? Isn't that the idea? No, I, I think these companies have sort of rationalized the pricing, so they are not trying to uh, compete on prices or undercut each other. It's And, and that's why I mentioned about duopolies. So the good yeah. thing is you, you can have, you know, two competitors, one with 60% share, the other one with 40%, and still both can do well. But to your point about the food delivery space being more crowded, Uber's in that too. It has Uber yes. Eats. And I wonder, you know, if Lyft is kind of like, correlated with the reopening in a positive way and ride demand going up, is that going to be bad for Uber because Uber Eats demand may be going down? Yes, Uber definitely has uh, a tougher comp when it comes to food delivery, and you're not going to see that sort of growth, which we saw during the pandemic. So it will offset the, you know, the pickup in ride sharing. And that's why they are now kind of doubling down in the freight space with this mm. recent acquisition of TransPlace. So in my mind, Uber wants to be that diversify player, the scale player, but there aren't many revenue synergies between these businesses, like the synergy between between ride sharing and food delivery is minimal. And like mm. th these are both commodity services, you know, right. users will gravitate towards the lowest price option. So I, I just feel Uber has a tougher uh, kind of task in terms of convincing investors that yes, the three businesses make sense under one umbrella. Mm. And you know, they'll be more profitable as a result of that. But we'll see. What is who takes Lyft rather than Uber? I take it because my credit card gives me 10 times points on lifts. That's, yeah. But that's I, basically my only rationale. I see. Is there a lift black? Can you, are you going to be able to get into an escalator or whatever with a lift? Or is lift, because I always thought lift was just like some dude's regular car. So I'm going to go out and get in somebody's Corolla <laughs> rather no, they than. They have tiered pricing, they have uh, tiered service levels, and uh, that's the business model. So they want, you know, users who are not that price sensitive to pay up and uh, for the service. And so they are launching. And that's so there's not a huge differentiation to Uber when it comes to the actual core business. 
Yeah, I mean, they are both copying each other. Anytime one comes up with a better feature, the other one's copies. But again, the point is they're just two. In food delivery, right. you've mm -hmm. got five or six vendors all doing the same At thing. At least. We have five or six in Berlin, you know, and more <laughs> There's coming. There's one specifically for pizza. I think it's called Slice. Yes, There's it a is. There's a lot of them out there. Uh, we also have a ton of different grocery services. I don't know if you had this in New York, but I can order groceries, pretty much anything you would get at the grocery store and have it at my door in 10 minutes time. That's pretty I mean, impressive. they are super fast. Does that New York's probably too trafficy for that? You can do it in two hours, I know, with Amazon and Whole Foods. Ugh, but yeah, so I mean, long. it takes just kind of a long time to get anywhere in Manhattan, in Manhattan at least. Um, I, I want to pivot from talking about groceries and food delivery to just talking about workers and finding drivers. It's incredibly difficult for these companies right now. How much of a headwind? Does that create for Uber and Lyft going forward? Yeah, so Lyft mentioned last night they spent about, you know, 375 million on driver incentives, and that was a contra revenue uh, to their top line. I guess at the end of the day, uh, they're all competing for that same worker pool. Mm -hmm. So they have to, you know, uh, shell out the incentives because these are not employees. And I think ride sharing is still a better business from a driver's perspective. In, in the case of food delivery, you're getting paid lower compared to, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the ride sharing. So from a worker perspective, I think ride sharing is cleaner. But and you have to put more on the line, don't you? Because you have to actually lease a car. And I remember when Uber first started, the company was only taking 10 to 15% of the fare. And then, you know, after you'd got your GMC, Yukon, Denali, <laughs> XL, and we're paying a $1,000 lease, all of a sudden the company said, hey, we're going to take 25% of your fare. And it seemed incredibly unfair to me, and I wouldn't, as a driver, want to be put in that position. After I sign a lease, all of a sudden you tell me I'm going to make less and less money? Yeah, so I, I think you're right. They can't raise the take rates, and you will see a pushback, and there is mm -hmm. that regulatory aspect that obviously it's always a wild card, you know, where you, you could see more regulation. But at the end of the day, they have pooled capacity, and they have right. the demand. And that is the value add of a marketplace. So, you know, the fact that there are just two marketplaces is good for ride sharing as an industry. Mandeep, you've said two things in the past like minute. One, regulation, and two, these aren't employees that we're talking about. This is the gig economy. Mm -hmm. But that's creating some problems for Uber and Lyft as well. How, how great is the regulatory risk on that front? Oh, that's a big risk. I mean, with these companies, the fact that they weren't profitable, at least now they're showing profitability, and the cost side is always kind of in focus because of the high variable costs in this business. So anytime you have the prospect of more regulation, it will increase costs. And that is not good for you know, sustaining the profitability. So clearly it is a big threat, but at least you know, as long as they can maintain the top line growth and with you know, uh, economies opening up, demand coming back, I, I think they should be good at least for the next one or two years. No one knows the kind of the growth rate three, four years down the line. I, I think uh, the business models will evolve. I noticed the other day I rode down, I took the subway down to Grand Central Station as I was heading out to Bronxville to look at houses <laughs> and it was empty. There was almost nobody on the subway. It was unbelievable. On the four, five, six here, usually it's packed. Yes, so they have taken share from a lot of the public transportation and the use cases for these companies keep evolving. 
Yeah. I mean, the whole aspect of ride sharing, like there isn't any sharing right now. <laughs> Hopefully yeah. at, at some point it will come back. But, you know, the, these companies have evolved and uh, I, I think the use cases will emerge and that should help, you know, at least uh, the, uh, these companies to maintain relevance. All right. Our producer, Charlie Volmer, writes in that his seven train this week was more packed than it's ever been. So <laughs> maybe I was just very off peak as I headed down to Grand Central. Mandeep, thanks very much for joining us. Mandeep Singh. Senior Tech Industry Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence talking to us about Uber out after the bell. This is Bloomberg. I am just looking forward to what we got going on today. We have a lot. Let's bring in Jennifer Epstein right now, political reporter from Bloomberg News. We got her on the line from Washington, D.C. to talk. Well, there's a lot to talk about, but I guess, Jennifer, the first uh, issue is the Biden administration, the CDC eviction moratorium, it looked like it was over. And now it looks like they're extending it till October 13th. Although the president himself said there's not really very strong constitutional grounds for this. Yeah, it's actually October 3rd. So it's two months from yesterday um, when the CDC director um, signed this order. And it's trying to be a bit more narrow and really focused on the the rise of the Delta variant and what the CDC director says is the public health threat that comes with people potentially being evicted from their homes and then, you know, ending up in shelters or on the streets um, where there could potentially be uh, more spread of the virus than you might see in if people were living in their own homes. Uh, But why do they care enough today and not like Saturday? Like, why not deal with this before (laughs) It ended. Yeah, well, it certainly seems like this did come up as a bit of a surprise for the administration. As much as they had known this deadline was coming, they were also very focused on on uh, the infrastructure bill. And, you know, it's really they seem to have also been caught a bit by surprise by the very rapid spread of the Delta variant and all of that sort of created this pressure. And then at the same time, you had these uh, this small group of uh, House Democrats really backed by the entirety of the House Democratic caucus saying uh, in the last few days at the end of last week, this is something that has to be done. You have to help these people out, um, you know, and, and so the administration found a way to do it. It just took them a bit longer than I think that advocates and and other outside people would have liked to have seen. Well, and uh, it may not be constitutional. I mean, we yeah, can always I mean, find way to do things. If it's not constitutional, it's just really not helpful, is it? Yeah, well, the, the president, I think, is somebody who's very cautious about those things. And that's sort of why he was reluctant to just go out and announce an extension last week uh, and kind of back in the Supreme Court uh, to it, you know, and, and he he doesn't, you know, always have the best filter for things. And so he kind of said that yesterday, that this is something that uh, might not pass muster in the courts, but it's something that the administration kind of had no choice politically but to try out. It, at the very least, they've bought a little bit of time, you right. know, a couple of days, a couple of weeks, while this works its way uh, in court. And, and, and the other issue here is really that the Treasury Department's uh, efforts to get out uh, over $40 billion in rental aid have been uh, pretty slow so far because it's something where Treasury is working with state and local governments, and that has all just taken a lot of time to get up and running this money from the Recovery Act that passed in March, and they were only able to get $1.5 billion of that out 
uh, to renters in the month of June. So, yeah. you know, they're hoping that that rationale, that that's taken so long, which is something uh, that Justice Kavanaugh did mention when he was part of uh, uh, the, the Supreme Court uh, uh, weighing in on this. He was not actually a part of the the um, major, the the majority ruling on this, but mm. uh, that that is something that that they are hoping that that maybe they can kind of thread the legal the legal argument there and have that uh, way of getting ahead yeah. of it. So speaking of legal arguments and and what a president does or does not have power to do, obviously, at the end of the day, this issue comes back to the pandemic. That is why there are millions of people facing the potential loss of their home. Is there anything else that President Biden has it in his power to do in terms of the vaccination front? Yes, he's finally mandated that that federal workers need to get vaccinated uh, or be tested all the time. But is there anything else? Yeah, I think the administration is continuing to look for more things to do. Um, I, they're looking for other areas of the federal government besides sort of the the executive branch employees um, who were covered by by the order last week to uh, potentially more public health kind of workers who are not necessarily a part of that initial order. I think the administration is also uh, just looking at at the the approval process for uh, the vaccines, you know, it seems like uh, we saw uh, Dr. Fauci last night saying that it could be just two weeks away from Pfizer getting final approval um, with with the FDA. And that's something where um, the administration, the, the White House is going to stay out of that because they don't want there to be any appearance of, pu- of, of political pressure on these public health agencies. Um, but that in itself, I think, would would be a pretty significant move forward because there are lots of people, at least right now, who are saying, I don't want to do anything until the FDA fully approves it. Mm. So that in and of itself could be a pretty big um, move forward. And then, um, you know, I, th- I think the administration is just going to kind of look for a- any little uh, you know, pocket of people it can get to uh, to try to to try to get more people vaccinated. Jennifer, thanks for spending some time with us. Jennifer Epstein is Bloomberg News political reporter coming to us out of Washington, D.C. Now, there has been a ton of M&A activity. Today alone, um, we saw a big... uh, deal in the telecom space with Apollo. We saw um, a big deal in soccer, La Liga, 10% of that went to CVC. Um, We saw a huge, like a $17 billion deal. What was that? Uh, We saw um, Saw VC... No, VC Properties uh, buying MGM Growth Properties, $17.2 billion. And, but you were pointing out... Square and Afterpay started the week off with a bang on Monday. The biggest acquisition ever for an Australian company, $29 billion. And uh, I think since the beginning of July, you said more than like $500 billion. $550 billion. $50 billion yeah. in deals have been done. So it's a great time to bring in uh, Thad Malik. He is the chair of Global Mergers and Acquisitions, the practice Global Mergers and Acquisitions practice at Paul Hastings. And he can talk to us about you know this, this incredible growth. Thad, thanks for joining us. Um, is this peaking now? Is this going to slow down? Or are we just going to look at you know record M&A activity this year? Yeah, thanks, Matt and Kaylee. Nice to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Right now, it's interesting. You've got pretty much the perfect confluence of events for continued activity. You alluded to some of it earlier in terms of rate 
reviews in terms of what people are seeing in terms of rates. But more importantly, markets don't really like uncertainty when it comes to M&A. And so with some of the pandemic challenges waning and with the vaccinations increasing, that's gotten people a little less uncomfortable about what's coming down the road. And it's pretty much the perfect confluence of events. I think you're going to start to see a little bit of a shift and you're starting to see this on the antitrust side. Mm. Folks are starting to focus a little bit more than they have in the past. And just yesterday, the FTC indicated that the crush of deals is so large that they're not able to get through their review in 30 days for some deals. And so that puts people in a little bit of limbo. But for now... I'd say we have a wary eye trained on the horizon, but things are still trending positive. But it's not even just that the deal approval process could be slow. The Biden administration has signaled that it wants to be a lot tougher on competition in general. How how much of a headwind is that to the M&A market? I think it's going to be a particular headwind for those that are in industries that they fix their sights on. The regulators mm-hmm. tend to follow a pretty well-worn path. They try to communicate a little bit of where they're, they're coming, and you see some of that in, in his executive order. And particularly for the large tech companies, those that are perceived to have large market presence, I think that scrutiny is going to continue. And I think you can add on top of that, frankly, some of what you're seeing in terms of the CFIUS review, the foreign review of of key industries and, and, and deals in that space. So I think that is going to be a continuing challenge. Right now, that's probably the biggest potential disruptor that folks are looking at, but more could be coming. Well, taxes is the other, right? Um, at least... Yep. I'm not sure which way that pushes things because we've seen a number of deals already, some very big deals due to the fact that private ownership saw maybe a a jump in capital gains coming and wanted to get out ahead of it. Uh, Absolutely. And one of the things that they've learned, I mean, in the past when this has happened, in particular for the private equity sponsors, there's been a surge of activity to try to beat the increase. And one of the issues that they've been discussing is whether they make that sort of retroactive So to a certain extent, that's got people a little, I don't want to say destabilized, but again, cautious about what they're looking at. So in particular for the sponsors, that becomes a very pressing concern. What's the hottest industry right now for merger activity? (laughs) Basically anything technology related, Mm. whether you call it digitization or digitalization, however you refer to it. People are recognizing, particularly with the work-from-home dynamics, that they need to upgrade their systems and capabilities and anything related to technology, whether that's improving your supply chain, whether that's improving your metrics, finding new ways of generating revenue from data that your, your uh, products push off. Anything that's related to that, there's a recognition that you need to be moving forward, and oftentimes buying it is cheaper than building it and certainly mm. faster. Does it help that there is uh, no interest rate risk here? I mean, (laughs) not only are rates low, negative to low, but they're never going up again. (laughs) Well, well, there's there's a thing about cycles. (laughs) Yeah, the cycles tend to move in cycles. So at at some point, there will be the inevitable sort of comeuppance. But no, certainly right now, that's a significant driver. Again, for the sponsors in particular, with rates being low, they can reset their expectations in terms of deals. And there's a lot of activity right now. I mean, there's what we're seeing on the service provider side from the investment banks. What the FTC did was just basically recognize what the service providers have been seeing. There's a lot of activity trying to get pushed through right now as quickly as possible because people don't want to get caught, you know, catching the falling knife, so to speak, when the inevitable cycle turns. Mm. All right. 
Thad, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, time to talk about, and it was great having you. Hopefully, get you back on soon. Thaddeus Malik there is the chair of Global Mergers and Acquisitions at Paul Hastings, talking to us about this M&A market, which has just been incredible. I, you know, one of the deals I forgot to mention was Betsy Cohen did another mm-hmm. SPAC deal today, and I think she's done at least twelve billion dollars worth of financial services SPAC deals. So when you bring SPACs into it, it just is. Yeah. An incredible market, um, and the growth has been um, pretty outstanding. MA Go, by the way, is one of my favorite functions on the Bloomberg Terminal, and it's a great way to see, for example, you can click on Forgo for the league table, and you can see how many deals have been done year to date or in the last month, etc. Highly recommend using it. MA Go. This is Bloomberg. Now I'm going to bring Kate Hello, Global Chief Investment Officer at Russell Investments, to talk a little bit about ESG investing to us. Kate, it's interesting um, because there are a few different ways investors can go with ESG, and I guess it depends. Do you have to decide if you want to um, chase returns or make a difference? Yeah, I think it's um, the blend of financial non-financial and regulatory drivers that are making people kind of go one direction versus another. Yeah, I think increasingly the ability to kind of prove out that, you know, leaning in certain directions, you know, can have a positive or at least not a negative impact on returns um, will start to kind of, you know, play through. Um, But I do think there, you know, you need to be, you know, kind of that balanced focus of, yeah, that primary objective, what is it? Is it about having the impact or is it about returns? Just so you can calibrate you know, how much you go in one direction versus the other. Do we have enough data to make ESG investments? I feel like a lot of this stuff has been pretty opaque, but is that changing? Yeah, yeah I think it's a great question. Um, and I think particularly on the climate side, the data availability and some of the approaches for kind of testing the impact of climate on different sectors uh, or different you know, types of metrics is getting a lot better and it's accelerating really quickly. And so I think a big area you know, needs to be to really sift through those different data options, test out you know, the, the impact it's having on asset pricing, because we might not see that for quite some time, but you can kind of scenario, kind of test your way into you know, different paths that you know, it could take. But the data is, is starting to get you know, much better quickly, particularly on the climate side. Before we get it deeper there, I want to understand outsourced CIO um, investment solutions. What exactly is that? Yeah, so it's you know, largely defined benefit plans, endowments and foundations and hospital you know, systems that are looking to outsource their you know, investment programs. In most cases, it's because they you know, want to focus on their core competencies, maybe want to up their risk management game and or just have a partner to help navigate the market. And then in terms of actually what we do or what the OCIO kind of universe does, it's, it's really about delivering a total solution that's customized to particular outcomes. And so it's not just about being a benchmark. You know, often it's focused on like the funded ratio for a pension or particular income needs you know, that an endowment is looking to achieve or volatility requirement. And so you know, having some flexibility in how you try to solve those problems is part of that kind of OCIO solution. 
How do you approach investing with climate specifically in mind, especially considering the green spending we're getting out of the bipartisan infrastructure plan, as well as uh, the Democratic only plan that will likely be pushed through before or after at some point? How do you how do you think about what may benefit the most? Yeah, and I think you still need to take a, a fairly long term view on you know, how this is going to impact capital allocation and um, and returns and asset pricing. But as we start to see some of these policy you know, kind of shifts and actual spending linked to it, you know, it does you know, make it a bit easier to start to think through the winners you know, and losers. You know, with some of the bills that are coming through, you know, at least on the U.S. side, you know, infrastructure spend and, and things like that that might lean a little bit more ESG just helps one think about how you might want to allocate and where there's that capital allocation element is, is you know, starting to be decided. Um, but yeah, I think that there's like there's just small pieces to kind of the earlier point. All of this is still early stages, and so you know, you still need to maintain diversification in terms of how you're approaching, you know, tilting mm-hmm. the portfolio because it's not clear on kind of where this is going. And so having the frameworks and the and the tools to really kind of understand the impact and be able to measure it, I think it's going to be really important along the way. Speaking of diversification, diversity and inclusion. I mean, the idea intuitively makes sense to me. Um, I was once talking to Mindy Grossman, who used to be the only woman on the board at Nike, and they apparently in a giant board meeting all turned to her and asked, how can we sell more shoes to women? And the obvious (laughs) answer is, duh, you need to have more women on the board. Um, And and that's, you know, I I think it makes makes sense just innately, but um, do we have enough data in in asset management that shows how important diversity is in returns? Yeah, there has been a you know, good amount of um, work done, both in terms of you know, boards, but also like at, you know, at investors and where you get, um, whether it's you know, gender related or other forms of diversity, you know, more kind of you know, balanced and consistent returns um, when you actually have more balanced and you know, perspectives. Yeah, and so I think that there are you know, you know, still you know, consistently work that needs to be done to prove that out. But you, know, you even see you know, there's, there's some work that's been done multiple times you know, saying that you know, women tend to be a little bit less action-oriented in a good way, i.e. they don't feel the need to overtrade the portfolio and, and try to you know, stick to the thesis and stick to the kind of the, the view um, that they have and more carefully think about making shifts. And so yeah, I do think that there's support in the asset management world for having that kind of diversified view and actually impacting and being able to have more consistent and persistent returns. Kate, we only have about 20 seconds left, but just to get your view on the market more broadly, would you want to be getting defensive or more risk on here? We're still constructive over over the next 12 months. We're, we're very focused on the kind of pandemic recovery trade. We're risk neutral right now um, just because of some of the volatility, but we're leaning into cyclicals. So there it says that we're a bit more constructive you know, on the markets overall. All right. All right. Great to get some time with you, Kate. Thanks so much for joining us. Kate Al-Hilau spent years at J.P. Morgan at, at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, now Global Chief Investment Officer at Russell Investments, giving us um, her insight on ESG as well as diversity and inclusion, which are you know more than just buzz- buzzwords now. I think investors are, are actually demanding these things. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.